Amen. Well, good morning, everyone, again. Good morning. Good morning. There we go. All right. Um, grace and peace to you. Uh, well, if you search uh, the most popular books on nearly any list, you're likely to find quite a few uh, self-help books that top the list, especially this time of year, right, where we're not too far from the new year. As of last night, the top book on Amazon was Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and to break bad ones, right? Sounds like a good book, and it is a really good book because it's been at the top of the list since 2018. It was the top, list, top book last year as well. Not too long ago, I'm sure some of you remember, Jordan Peterson and his book, 12 Rules for Life, or someone like Rachel Hollis and her book, Girl, Wash Your Face, sold millions of copies. Now, the question I want to ask this morning is, why is the self-help genre so popular? Why do these kind of books attract so many readers? My hunch is that we are looking for wisdom. We are looking for guides, for rules, for encouragement on how to live life well. Now, the dominant narrative today, the sort of all-pervading message that you hear, is that there is no right way to live. Truth is not something you discover, as in something out there that actually exists. Rather, it's something you create. And the highest good in all of life is to live out your truth fearlessly and authentically, no matter what people might say. Now, I don't mock. That's a pretty attractive take on things, to be honest, because it makes us self-creators. I get to determine the shape of my own life, and no one can say otherwise. This is my truth, and I will live it. However, for all its intrigue, I think it leaves us in a place of confusion. We have a bunch of little T truths running around, but no big T truth to wrangle them up and point them in the right direction. And it turns out that we're not all that good at self-creation. We create fantasies and delusions that in the end mislead us. We live this life and it turns out not to be the one that we expected. And I think many are coming to that recognition. We're tired of self-creation. Instead, what we're looking for are reliable paths. So give me 12 rules for life. Just tell me what to do so I can do it. Or give me you-go-girl sermonettes because my way is not working. I think that's the way things are. Now today... We're beginning a new series on the book of Proverbs. Now, why? Well, because self-help is only some help. Self-help is only some help. We need something more. And I think Proverbs is just that. It aims to make us wise. It aims to make us skilled at living. So in our time of mass confusion of people creating their own ways, Proverbs says, actually, this is the way. Here's the path to, good, to a good life. Now, over the coming weeks, 
Uh, we'll discover just what that entails. But this week, what I want to do is get a running start at the book of Proverbs. And I want to do that by just considering what wisdom actually is. Now, that might not sound all that exciting, but it is important because Proverbs approaches wisdom from a distinct vantage point. And maybe it's one that we don't share. So we need to be clear to sort of match up our worldview with the biblical worldview when it comes to wisdom. So how does that sound? That's the goal this week. And what I want to do is begin by talking about wisdom and creation. By wi- but wisdom and creation. So wisdom begins, for us, with the understanding that the world and all its contents are created by God. There is, in other words, an order to things woven into the fabric of reality. And to discover that order and to live in accordance with it is wisdom. And folly or foolishness is the opposite. To live not in harmony but in conflict with the order that God has inscribed into the world. So let's unpack that just a little bit more. You see, in the ancient world, people thought gods were local, meaning there was a god for a particular mountain, or there was a god for thunderstorms, or good crops, or protection. Gods back then were a bit like insurance today. So instead of calling farmers or state farm, you would call upon your particular god to come and save you. Now, in the midst of that, Israel was unique. Over time, they came to realize that their God, Yahweh, was not a local deity, but he was, in fact, the creator of heaven and earth. And he created things in a certain way, with an order to them. And that's to say that the world is not random or meaningless. It has a kind of coherence to it. It has a kind of integrity to it. And that order that exists in the world is, in fact, a reflection of the very wisdom of God. Again, as our passage that we just read. I guess I only have the last verse, but it says, The Lord by his wisdom founded the earth by understanding he established the heavens. So, What it means to say is that the world is not simply a blank canvas or a lump of clay that we can form according to our own will. Rather, it has a natural form to it, an integrity that ought to be respected and celebrated. And again, there are certain forms of living that cooperate with that order, and those are called wise. And there are certain forms of living that conflict with that order, and those are called foolish. So for us, this path to wisdom, it begins with submission. It begins with submission. That is, the glad recognition that God is creator and not us, and that he made the world in a certain way, and that it's our job not to confront it, but to conform to it. Do you guys see how that picture of the world is so much different than ours today? Put simply, we just don't believe in an order. We think the world and ourselves really are blank canvases. But what if they're not? 
What if there is an order to things? Such a thing is human nature, and such a thing is order in the world. Well, if there is, that makes our projects self-creation, sort of living however I want to live in whatever manner I choose. That makes those projects pretty perilous, because it's only a matter of time before our projects break up on the rocks of reality. So there's an order out there. And I think what we could say is that the first aspect of wisdom is this, skill in living. The first aspect of wisdom is skill in living. Now, if you continue, continue through the Proverbs, you'll find that much of it is just good practical advice. The message is, if you do this, things will go well for you. Things will go well in your relationships, in your career, in your personal life, and etc. However, if you don't do this, if you do the opposite, expect the opposite. Expect for things not to go well. So, for instance, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 4, Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. So what we have here is just a simple commendation of the value of diligence. The world that we live in is structured in such a way that hard work generally pays off. Or try another, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 16. A fool in his anger, or rather, excuse me, a fool's anger is known at once, but a prudent man conceals dishonor. So here we have, in the proverb, a word on how to handle insults, whether they be purposeful or not. When the prudent person or the wise person is insulted, he overlooks it. But that's something the foolish person cannot do. He or she is either too concerned with their ego or incapable of controlling their anger. And the point is, peace in human relationships often comes at the price of one's own ego. A wise person overlooks it and therefore maintains peace. Or one more. Uh, again, a simple uh, advice here from the Proverbs. Without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. So here is just uh, a simple recommendation for counsel. Because one perspective on any one decision is often limited and skewed. In other words, half-baked and hasty plans come to nothing, but well-laid plans with many counselors succeed. So the point is, wisdom, as it's demonstrated here in these Proverbs and indeed throughout the rest of the book, it's simply a recognition on how things work and then going with the grain of things rather than against them. There's an order. Proverbs claims to tell us what that order is and to show us this is how you walk with it. And when you go with that order it almost always leads to success. That's fairly simple. But success is really not the highest goal of wisdom. Righteousness is. And this is where biblical wisdom, as it's specifically given to us here in the Proverbs, this is where it diverges from modern self-help. You know, most self-help that is out there is amoral. Its main concern is how to get you what you want. 
It's not interested in concepts like righteousness and justice and equity. So while self-help acknowledges that there is an order to the world, and truly most self-help is just kind of based on the social sciences, based on sort of tests and data, and say this is generally how people live, and uh, this is the general way people act, and so here's a good way for you to go. So it acknowledges that there's an order, but proper wisdom acknowledges that that order is a moral order. See the difference? It's a moral order that Proverbs acknowledges. So because God created things, truth and justice are real, and to truly live well, to truly be successful in life, our lives must conform to their standard. In other words, wisdom is not mere pragmatism, which means that whatever works is right. In our world, a lot of bad things work, don't they? Oppression works. Lying works. Stealing works. We know people, maybe even ourselves at times, who can use those things to get what we want. But just because they're effective doesn't mean that they're right. In fact, the witness of Proverbs and indeed all the scriptures are pretty clear on this point. Unrighteousness is effective for only so long. Eventually, the order of things that God built into the world pushes back. So as Solomon says, this is uh, Proverbs chapter 26, verse 27. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone, it will come back on him. So living unrighteously in the world is like pushing a stone uphill. You know, it's not that hard to begin with. But the higher you get, and the steeper that incline becomes, the more the task becomes impossible. Eventually, your strength fails, and gravity wins, and that stone that you worked so hard to push up the hill rolls back on you. You can only be unrighteous in God's world for so long before your life crumbles under its own self-contradiction. That's why unrighteousness is never wisdom. It's always foolish. It's because it's ultimately self-destructive. A man lays a snare to catch others, but he ends up the one caught in it. Unrighteousness is irrational and ultimately stupid. Though it might yield results in the short term, its ultimate end is destruction. It's just not wise. Now, wisdom, on the other hand, it cooperates with the moral order. You'll find this again all throughout Proverbs, but let me just read you a few. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 1. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. So again, in our world, doesn't tipping the scales a little bit work? However, it's ultimately foolish. Why? Well, because there is one, namely the Creator, who watches over human affairs to uphold what is right, what is just. Again, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 31, He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. 
So as before, wisdom, as opposed to foolishness, it takes God, the maker, seriously. Wisdom understands that the order that he inscribed into creation, he upholds in creation. So while the righteous thing is often the unprofitable thing, right, generosity to the poor costs us and oppression pays, in the long run, it yields yield results. Righteousness does. The unrighteous will be caught in their own schemes, but the righteous will be delivered. Read uh, Psalm uh, 37. It's all about this principle sort of worked out in the life of Israel. Don't fret because of evildoers. Don't become envious or jealous. They're here one moment and they're gone the next. Their place acknowledges them no more, but the meek will inherit the earth. The righteous will fall, or the unrighteous will fall by their own schemes. But all the righteous has to do is to keep on keeping on. Unrighteousness doesn't work in God's world. So in sum, what Proverbs is telling us is that there is a given structure to the world. There is a reliable cause and effect. And humans can live however they please. But at the end of the day, some ways are just better than other ways. Some ways of living are more in tune with reality. There is an order. And yet, even when that order breaks down, God doesn't break down. He upholds it. Even when we fail that order, God won't. He watches after what is righteous and just. So wisdom, then, is just about discovering that order and trying to live in harmony with it. Rather than swimming against the stream, allowing it to take you. That's righteous living. Now, there's more to be said there. Ecclesiastes offers a little bit of a different vision, as does Job, but that's for another time. Now, there's one more aspect to wisdom as it pertains to God himself, but I want to save that for the end. First, let's just consider how to gain wisdom. So, again, God created the world in a certain way. He created it according to wisdom and righteousness. So that means it's not random, nor is it immoral, but it's ordered. And then God creates us, humans, who are capable of discovering and knowing that order. So it actually exists, and we can actually find it. In other words, the order that God put out in the world, He also put into your heart and mind. The two sort of correspond to one another. The pattern of things is knowable, and wisdom is truly within our grasp. And throughout Proverbs, um, it was written, scholars think, to, to train young men. Um, and because of that, wisdom is often depicted as a woman calling in the streets. So hear what she says to these young men who are roaming around. Wisdom shouts in the streets. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings, How long? O naive ones, will you love being simple? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. So she's there at the busy corner where everyone's roaming, and she's calling out, Come to me. How long are you going to choose your own ways over my ways? So the message here is pretty darn clear. Wisdom is near to us, 
But more often than not, her invitation falls on deaf ears. Now, three kinds of people are depicted in this passage. The simple, or, or the naive, the scoffer, or the mocker, and the fool. And these three, each for their own reasons, cannot hear the voice of wisdom. So a simple one, or a naive person, is gullible. A simple one is too easily persuaded. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 15 says this, the naive believes everything. That is, because he doesn't have a foundation in himself, he's easily led astray. He doesn't have a proper knowledge of what's good and evil. He's too concerned with fitting in. He's too concerned with uh, being like others that he just goes along with whatever's said. And therefore, a simple person just bumbles their way into misfortune. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 3, it says, The prudent sees evil and hides himself, but the naive go on and are punished for it. He just sort of lacks sense. He lacks understanding. And so he's not necessarily evil, right? He's not a, a hard dealer in vice. He's just susceptible to it because he can't make judgments for himself. If you read Proverbs chapter 1, that's how it begins with the father saying to his son, don't be enticed by sinners. Just don't go with them. Learn wisdom instead. Build that foundation within you so that when that voice speaks, you can resist it. Now, the scoffer, on the other hand, is the very opposite of the simple. While the simple believes everyone and everything that is told to him, the scoffer believes no one but himself. The simple is impressionable. The scoffer is inflexible. And ultimately, what makes him a scoffer is the fact that he's hardened by pride. Because he thinks he knows better, because he thinks he's superior and that his way is truly the right way, he's actually incapable of learning wisdom. He just simply cannot receive it. He can't take it on board. Thus, the scoffer is trapped in the echo chamber of his own heart and mind. And so in Proverbs chapter 1, wisdom scoffs at the scoffer. And she says to him, that he will eat the fruit of his own way, and he will be sated with his own devices, chapter 1, verse 31. So she says to him, listen, if you think your way is so great, have your way. You will eat the fruit of it. And ultimately, it's a way of death and destruction. So because he's proud, he cannot hear wisdom. Now the fool, the third character in our passage is a bit harder to distinguish from the simple and the scoffer, but the idea of the fool is that of moral deficiency. His moral framework is corrupted, and therefore it negatively impacts his judgment and reason. He just doesn't look at things the right way. And because the way he processes the world, the way he takes in his experiences, and so on and so forth, He's just wrong. And what happens is that he delights in what is wrong. 
Proverbs chapter 10, verse 23, doing wickedness is like sport to a fool. He just enjoys it. He likes it. He's happy with where he's at. Now, overall, the picture is pretty clear. These three figures are all out of touch with reality, each in their own way. God created this order. It exists in a certain way. But the scoffer, the simple, and the fool are just, it's lost on them. And therefore, they're in trouble. Life is hard for them because they're going the wrong way. Now, whatever the case, these three figures present the photo negative of a wise person. Wisdom is the proper balance between teachability and reservation. A wise person is teachable, but they're not gullible. Right? They're truly open to learning, yet they're not just taking everything on board. A wise person is also reserved, but not rigid. So on the one hand, they're a little bit cautious about what comes their way, about the counsel that people give them, but they're not rigid about it. They're not proud about what they know. They're actually willing to say, I was wrong about that. My way is not the right way, and there's a different way, actually. So a wise person recognizes that there's more that's out there, but it also recognizes that not everything that's out there is, in fact, good. And, of course, wisdom is also devoted to righteousness. It may look wise, it may smell wise, but if it's not righteous, it's rejected. So the point, overall, is wisdom is near to us, but only a certain kind of person can hear it. And that has to be cultivated. Only a certain kind of person can hear it. And the bottom line is that anyone who desire or who seeks wisdom must desire wisdom. Desire is the bottom line. Throughout Proverbs, wisdom is depicted as a treasure that one must go to great lengths to find. If you seek for her as silver, Solomon says, and search for her as for hidden treasure, then you will discern the fear of the Lord. Like silver ore, wisdom is not got in a day, nor is it got without serious effort, but the, the, the prize of wisdom is worth the toil. You know, why do miners overturn the mountains and burrow deep beneath the earth? It's because they desire, they even love hidden treasure and what it brings to them. Yet wisdom is better. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Her profit is better than the profit of silver, and her gain better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire compares with her. How remarkable. Nothing you desire in all the world compares to the value of wisdom. So the point is, the pursuit of wisdom requires a recalibration of our desires. The simple fact is, we love lesser things, sometimes unworthy things. And if we are ever to have wisdom, those love, loves must fade and give way to an all-controlling desire for wisdom. And if you seek for her as hidden treasure, you will find her. And her proceeds will be far beyond that 
of what you could find anywhere else. So all this assumes is that wisdom is out there and that it's knowable and also that it's found virtually everywhere. In practical terms, the pursuit of wisdom requires, one, a careful observation of life through your own personal experience, and two, through the experience of others. So what a wise person does is they see those recurring patterns in the world, not just of human behavior, but in all the world, and then they make generalizations about the order of things, and then those generalizations guide conduct. Right? We think of all the sort of uh, uh, old proverbs that come down to us. They're nothing but seeing patterns, making generalizations, and then saying, this is how you should live. Now, the first source of wisdom, as we said, is experience and observation. That is, it requires... Um, excuse me, I already said that. Uh, the, the point in Proverbs is that it's constantly drawing upon the world, specifically nature. I like this one that comes from uh, Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Solomon says, Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. So he observes the natural order, He sees how ants operate, and he says there's wisdom there. Wisdom to guide the affairs of human life. So in this sense, the physical sciences are avenues of wisdom for us. All science seeks to do is to uncover the order that God has embedded in the world and to learn from it. Even the social sciences provide wisdom too as they seek to understand human nature better. This is how humans generally act. This is what they do in this kind of situation And here's how you should be prepared and ready to act. It's just another form of wisdom. Now, we we learn wisdom from observation and experience, but also from correction. A wise person learns from their mistakes. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 17, He is on the path of life who heeds instruction, but he who ignores reproof goes astray. So one person listens to the voice of instruction, and they're constantly amending their way, charting an ever straighter course, while the other wanders about aimlessly. We need correction. There's wisdom there. The other source of wisdom is simply tradition. And that means listening to our parents and the generations that come before them. All throughout Proverbs, most of the first nine chapters are just a father speaking to his sons. Listen to me. I know better. I've been around the block a little bit longer. And same thing, the generations previous. So wisdom is tested and proven with time, and it's handed down to us in the present. And the lessons of the past are forgotten at our peril. Which leads us last now, and we'll wrap up with this, to the ultimate source of wisdom. So, God has made the order of things discoverable and knowable to us, but not in its entirety. You know, our natural reason is pretty powerful. You think of some of the things that we've been able to learn and discover. It's remarkable. However, at a certain point, that power of reason 
stops short and it can go no further. Not to mention, it's also fallen. Our reason, our capacity to see things and make judgments about them doesn't function like it should. It's prone to come to all the wrong conclusions about the world and about human nature. Thus, if we are to be truly wise at the end of the day, there's one thing we need above all other things. And that's the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So in the end, wisdom is relational. That is, wisdom is not simply a matter of learning certain principles and then applying them mechanistically. Rather, wisdom begins with a relationship with God. And that relationship is one that is characterized by fear. Now, scholars point out that we really don't have an adequate word to translate the Hebrew word yirah. So it doesn't mean horror. That is, the kind of fear that would make us run and hide. But neither does it mean simply respect, which is inappropriately weak. It's somewhere in between. So if fear is too negative, maybe healthy fear is better. Either way, the fear of the Lord puts a profound check on our so-called wisdom. And it causes us to acknowledge our absolute dependence upon God. And that He alone possesses wisdom and that we are accountable to Him for the course of our life. And Proverbs says, when that fear enters your heart, it's the beginning of wisdom. You are well on your way. It's the foundation and the source from which all wisdom proceeds. And the first thing that it leads us to do when we fear the Lord is to distrust our own ability to discern what's right and wrong. When we fear the Lord, we don't presume to know better ourselves. And what it creates in us is a constant deference to God, a recognition that our own perspective is limited and faulty. And what it creates is an honest humility in our lives that makes us teachable and those who can truly receive wisdom. I don't know. Proverbs 26, verse 12 says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? So someone who thinks he knows. And then the teacher says, There is more hope for a fool than for him. In other words, a person who is wise in his or her own eyes is someone full of their own wisdom, which in the end is no wisdom at all. On the contrary, to become wise, the first step is to recognize that we're fools. I don't know. I don't understand. Lord, teach me. And that leads to the second outcome of godly fear, and that's obedience. Because I understand now in a way that was just beyond me before, because I understand that my ways are neither wise nor just, I cling to the instruction of God as it's given to me in His Word. You know, I might not understand His counsel. I might not even agree with it. But I know it comes from above, and I fear God. Therefore, I submit to Him in faith, trusting, just like a, a child would with their parent, that He knows what's truly good. I don't get it, but I'm going to listen. I'm no longer going to insist on my perspective. I will gladly yield to God. 
I'll listen to what he says. I will follow through with him. And the third outcome of the fear of the Lord is a hatred for evil. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Now, as it's used here, hatred is less an emotion, but more a decision of the will, as in a rejection of evil, a refusal to even entertain it as a path for our lives. So what proper fear does is it throws cold water on all our inclinations toward unrighteousness and injustice. It just, if it sees evil, it knows that's not the way. I hate that way. I will not choose that way. I will not go down that road. And lastly, as we wrap things up, godly fear leads us to Jesus, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians chapter 2, verse 3. God's wisdom is not merely an abstract principle nor is it merely a pattern embedded into creation. It is himself in the person of his Son. And therefore, anyone who seeks wisdom, who truly desires to live well in life, must seek Jesus, the firstborn over all creation and the firstborn from the dead. God has given him the first place in everything, Colossians chapter 1, verse 18 says, Therefore, there is no wisdom in this world that does not account for him. If he doesn't fit into it as the central component, it's simply foolishness. So what does this amount to for us? Well, first, the book of Proverbs is a call to recognize the unwisdom of our ways. That we are indeed simpletons or scoffers or fools. It's just, a, it's just a matter of saying, which one are you? And it helps us to recognize that. It's a call as well to renew the fear of God in our hearts. To recognize that there is one who knows the way. And that we must fear him. That we must follow him. And that we must obey him. And then it calls us to desire wisdom, whose proceeds are better than gold and silver. And it leads us, and I think this is just where I want to leave us, is to fall before God in prayer and ask that he would show us wisdom, which is nothing other than Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the wisdom of God. So as we come to the table now, let that sort of lead our time of reflection as we search our hearts. Lord, give us this wisdom, your son Jesus. So come receive the elements, take them back to your places, and I'll lead us in a moment.